I'm Jonathan Mosen. This is Mosen at Large, the show that's got the blind community talking. On this week's episode, lots of gratitude all over the place. This week's tech briefing and an in-depth discussion on a range of blindness issues with the president-elect of AER, Mark Riker. Mosen at Large Podcast. As always, it's a pleasure to be back with you. Hope you had a good week, whether it was progress or peace or prosperity you were seeking from the last week. I hope that you got what your heart desired. This is episode 216 of the podcast, and 216 happens to be the area code for the Cleveland area in Ohio, a Midwestern state in the United States of America. It's often been a bellwether state, hasn't it, in elections, you know, whichever way Ohio has gone. A lot of the time the presidency has gone. Not always, but a lot of the time. And in thinking about Cleveland, Ohio, I don't know much about it, but I did wonder, was it named after Grover? And I'm not talking about Grover from... I I can't do that too long or it'll break my throat. I'm not talking about Grover from Sesame Street, although I love Grover from Sesame Street. He was furry and cute. And now that I've got a granddaughter, I've got an excuse to get back in touch with Sesame Street again. No, I'm talking about Grover Cleveland, former president of the United States. And yes, apparently Cleveland, Ohio was indeed named after Grover Cleveland because apparently he had a lot of property in the area. And that, as Forrest Gump would say, is all I have to say about that. But if you are in Cleveland, Ohio, and you would like to trumpet its many virtues, well, I mean, be my guest. Be our guest. Put our podcast to the test. That's what I say. Now, what I like about this community that we've built around the podcast is that we have a range of perspectives on issues. And so sometimes we talk about things that are broken, accessibility problems that are impeding our lives. And we also talk about things that are cool and that people may benefit from. And I want to express gratitude for a couple of things that have happened in my life this week. As I mentioned last week, we had a horrific cyclone here in New Zealand, Cyclone Gabrielle. It has resulted in loss of life, absolute decimation of some industries in certain parts of the country. It is going to take us a long time to recover from this. And we need as a country to think strategically about how we recover, how we rebuild in an era of climate change. And I was listening to the breakfast show that Bonnie and I have chosen to listen to, hosted by Tova O'Brien. She's a very gifted journalist, and she was very popular with News Hub TV3, where she used to work. And when Today FM, which was a rebrand of a failed previous news talk brand, started, they lured Tova O'Brien away to do what we call in New Zealand the breakfast show. In American radio markets, they call it Morning Drive. And we really enjoy her. She's bubbly. She's super intelligent. Her comments are always on point. She's a very good interviewer. And you just feel like it's a positive way to start the day listening to Tova O'Brien on Today FM. If you're in New Zealand, I highly recommend giving her a go. One of the reasons why we were on the market for a new breakfast show was the rampant ableist language that is on our public broadcaster, RNZ National, that we used to listen to. And I have talked about ableist language a bit on this show. And you heard my select committee submission in which I discussed ableist language. And I'm pleased to say the parliamentary select committee has been extremely sympathetic to this. And we are going to see some progress on ableist language and its elimination in our public media, as we should. 
But as an old New Zealand ad on the TV used to say, good things take time and it's going to take a while for that new charter to make it through Parliament. There's all sorts of upheaval in our public broadcasting in New Zealand because they were going to merge our radio and TV entities. Now they've decided that's too politically troublesome and they're not going to do that anymore. And that should mean that the revised RNZ charter will eventually take effect and that has a much stronger commitment to disabled people in that charter and that select committee report does talk about ableist language and the harm that it does in wider society. Meanwhile, on Today FM, I can only recall one use of ableist language from Tova O'Brien in the whole of 2022. When she came back from her break, there was a bunch of them. She was talking about blind arrogance, blind rage and blind political ambition. And I kind of shrugged my shoulders and thought, oh, brother, what's happened over the summer break? But the use that really encouraged me to take some action occurred the day after the cyclone. In other words, the day that the mop up was beginning and we were truly coming to terms with the ferocity of what had happened and the magnitude of what had happened. And keep in mind that, like many businesses, we had some staff for a while who were unaccounted for because all the power and all the telecommunications were down. The roads were difficult to pass. And so there were thousands of people who simply could not be reached. Obviously, that is hell, living hell for friends and family members. But it's also hell for those of us who care about our people. When you can't find people, you get very anxious. You just hope that when the comms come back, you will find those people okay. And I'm very pleased to say that it took a few days, but ultimately all our people were accounted for. Some have had some terrible flooding and some pretty horrific experiences, but they're all okay. Now, on that morning after, Tova O'Brien was talking about the way that different people react to disasters. And she talked about the blindly blasé. Now, I have never heard that expression before. I suppose it trips off the tongue. Blindly blasé is kind of it's, yeah, a bit poetic, I suppose. But as we were trying to track people down, it really seemed insensitive to me. Here I am, a chief executive who happens to be blind, and this person is talking about the blindly blasé. And so after sleeping on it, actually, I got my laptop out at 5 a.m., because when I get up, and I wrote a very careful message and told her how much we love the show and what a gifted broadcaster she is, because I genuinely believe that. I think she's one of the best broadcasters New Zealand had. And I explained that one of the reasons why we moved from Morning Report to her show was because of ableist language, and suddenly it had really crept up on her show. And I explained the consequences to wider society of ableist language, and particularly the hurt caused by talking about the blindly blasé as we're all trying to find people after the cyclone. And I sent that very carefully worded email on the Wednesday and didn't hear anything for a while. And I thought, oh, well, maybe it went into the bit bucket. Maybe they don't clear that address. Maybe she thought the email was so ridiculous and contemptuous that it didn't warrant a reply. But I thought maybe there's just a lot going on. I mean, there's certainly a lot going on for me as a result of the cyclone. And when you are covering an event like this, there is a lot going on when you're hosting a breakfast show with you and your team. And so I just left it for a while. And sure enough, on the Monday of this week, as I put this podcast together, I got one of the most gracious replies to an email that I have ever received in my life. And it was so gracious 
that I sat there stunned. I just sat there basking in this moment that somebody truly got it. Somebody received the feedback so non-defensively and processed it and wrote back in the way that she did. And I just didn't really know how to reply, how to express my gratitude for her getting it. I won't read the email because I don't have permission to, and it's been such a positive exchange. But the general gist of it was she unreservedly apologized for the use of ableist language, and she did use that term, unreservedly apologized. She is aware of other communities where language can cause damage, and she said she needed, obviously, to extend her antenna to other communities. And she said, thank you for teaching me and for listening, and to feel free to contact her if I ever found that she was using that kind of language again, but she said that she hoped that I didn't have cause to contact her again about that kind of language. Now, she could have left it at that. I would have been satisfied, and I am delighted that she took it on board so readily. But she did one more thing. She went on the radio, and she spoke about the lessons that she had learned. This is from Today FM. This is Toby O'Brien. Hopefully, given the circs, they're okay with me using this piece. Instead of doing my usual editorial here, I am going to read some feedback I received recently. I've abridged the email because, well, it's, it's long. The author took such care to patiently and thoughtfully explain something about language to me, which I wish I hadn't needed explaining, but for which I'm enormously grateful they took the time. And perhaps in the context of what we were talking about yesterday, the, the Roald Dahl quote-unquote censorship debate that we've been having, this, this lends some context as well. Hi Tova, my wife and I have been listening to you on Today FM since that first exciting and chaotic Monday last year. We love the show and you're a gifted broadcaster. Thanks for the work that you and your team are putting into it. I want to stress from the outset that I'm not making a formal complaint. I'm just appealing to your sense of fairness and decency. My wife and I are both blind. Unfortunately, in recent times, your use of ableist language, particularly where blindness is concerned, has increased. I'm writing to you because you're a thinker and a reasonable person, and I don't think for a moment you're intentionally trying to denigrate anyone, but nevertheless, that's the effect. I was enjoying your editorial piece on the way we all react to crises such as the floods. I identify with this, like you. I am a news junkie, and I find myself drawn into the coverage, even when I may not be learning anything new and feeling very deeply what is happening? What compounds this for me is that the organisation of which I'm CEO has 22 offices around the country. I have around 120 staff to think about, a significant number of whom were in the path of Gabrielle. So, to hear when my guard was down, your comments about the quote-unquote blindly blasé was incredibly hurtful as I tried to account for all my staff. I am blind and I am far from blasé about this situation. It seems to me that blindly adds nothing at all to the point you were making. Blasé stands alone to make your point. I then did a quick search on the Today FM website and found that there has been a significant increase in your use of ableist language in 2023. Blind arrogance, blind rage, blind political ambition. What all these references have in common is that you're hijacking the word blind to mean something other than absence of sight and they are always pejorative. I want to explain why this matters. Disabled people make up roughly a quarter of the population. We are the largest minority in the country, but we're the most marginalised. We're not on people's radios and TVs. We're not in the House of Representatives. There are very few disabled CEOs like me. Our unemployment rate is over double that of the national average. Many of these problems can be traced to one thing, 
attitudes. The biggest problems I've faced in life aren't related to my blindness. They're related to other people's perceptions of it. That's why when you, me, Tova, use the word blind as a synonym for ignorance, stupidity, unthinking, unaware or angry, you are making a contribution to our continued marginalisation. Thanks so much for reading. Wow. Thank you. First of all, very much for listening, but thank you for taking the time to write and thank you for helping me be more thoughtful with language. You're absolutely right on absolutely every count, including that I'm not intentionally trying to denigrate anyone, but I completely understand now that I am. I can't promise that I'll get this right all of the time. I've been ignorantly using this language my entire life, but I do promise to be more conscious and conscientious with my words. And I will always, as now, gratefully take feedback like this and keep working to get it right for everyone. I don't want any of our listeners to feel marginalised or denigrated. The only thing I can say about that is that is pure class, absolute class. And thank you for that, Tova. Now, the combination of this response from her and the response that we've had from Stuff, which is one of our media outlets in New Zealand, where they are now encouraging their journalists to stop using ableist language, which is kind of a lazy, outdated thing to do. We are making progress and it makes our public broadcaster look all the more the outlier for trying to dig in on this issue because other media outlets are totally getting it and we are making some very positive change. And it just goes to show, as I have often said over the years, when it comes to advocacy, it does a lot of the time feel like banging your head against a brick wall. And every so often, the brick wall moves just a little bit and you realize that you've made progress. And I think the lesson too is that if I had gone in all guns blazing and blasted her for the use of ableist language, I would not have got the very gracious reply that I received. I would not have had her in that receptive mode, willing to take that feedback so generously on board. So it's a reminder to all of us engaged in advocacy that we should assume goodwill until we have irrefutable evidence that no goodwill exists. The other expression of gratitude I have is that, as you may know, Mushroom FM jumped on the Mastodon bandwagon in November. And we talked about that here on Mosin at Large. And when we did that, I predicted that Twitter would go kaboom in the way that it has and the way that it continues to do. And I expressed the hope that other internet radio stations in the blindness space would join us. And I'm absolutely thrilled that that is what's happened Most are being good Mastodon citizens and using hashtags appropriately so that if you are interested in the individuals involved in some of these projects, but not necessarily in the project itself, you can filter out that content without unfollowing the individual. There are a few who aren't doing it, but most are, and I think we all appreciate that consideration. Well, when we jumped on board with Mastodon in November, there was a rush of traffic onto Mastodon and the original company that I was looking at using for Mastodon hosting shut down new registrations because they were just being overwhelmed and they felt like they couldn't provide the quality of service that they would like if they took on too many registrants at once. And so I picked another option. I'd never heard of this company before, but they said they offered Mastodon hosting. I wanted to get on with it. Get on with it is what I wanted to do. And so I went with them. From the get-go, it made me a bit nervous because I had to chase them up just to get my login credentials to find out what actually do I do now that the Mastodon instance is set up. 
And when we finally got there, we found that push notifications weren't working on any of our Mastodon accounts. What I mean by that is, if you mention somebody at Mushroom FM or favorite one of their toots or something like that, we weren't getting notifications on our smartphone apps that you had done those things. We'd have to go and check manually, which is just a bit of a pain. So I contacted this company explaining the issue and it would take days and days to get a response and they'd say, we'll look into it and they set up a test account eventually to have a play and they confirmed that the problem did exist. That server was not pushing notifications, but they didn't know why and I didn't know enough about the inner workings of Mastodon to try and debug it myself and so we were at this impasse and I kept pinging them every so often saying, hey, any more thoughts on this lack of push notifications because it's unusual. And a couple of weeks ago, I sent a message to them saying very respectfully, look, if you can't get this resolved, I think it might be a good idea for us to migrate to another hosting provider because... We want to be responsive on Mushroom FM and not having those push notifications is a bit of a big deal. And I didn't even get a reply to that email. And so I started making inquiries and I found that the original provider that I was looking at that had closed registrations to provide a quality service to its existing customers was back open for business. And this company is called masto.host. That's how you get to them. You can go to them on the web at masto.host. The moment I sent an inquiry in about push notifications not working and we'd like to migrate, he got back to me within minutes. This is Hugo, by the way. Hugo, who operates masto.host. And we had a conversation by email that probably generated more traffic in two hours than I've ever had with this company that we were using. And he said, my one concern is that if we just migrate all the files from one host to another host, we might inherit the problem and it won't fix it. And I said, just the fact that you are willing to engage with me on this gives me comfort. And if we migrate and we find that the problem is still there and you don't know how to fix it, then okay, I'll start from scratch with you guys because at least we're having a conversation. At least I'm not waiting days for a reply to my email. And so to the credit of the other company, they did set a time where the three of us were online to migrate the data files. So we didn't have to set up our accounts again and our follower relationships and all those things from the old company to masto.host. And we did that. And with bated breath, once the migration had completed and the DNS had propagated, I went and sent a toot to the Mushroom FM account I have. And what do you know? No push notifications. He was right. Whatever the problem was, had migrated along with the instance. But what was cool about this was as soon as I let him know that, he said, can I create an account on your instance? And I said, of course you can. If you're willing to troubleshoot this with me, I'd be very grateful. He created the account and right away he found the issue, which was related to an encryption key, I understand. And he regenerated the key and voila, that's your actual French right there. Voila, we've got push notifications going to social.mushroomfm.com. Now, I really want to send out a big shout out to Hugo and Masto.host because the speed and the quality of his responses, the fact that he took that much time to care about a customer who hadn't even paid yet 
is absolutely brilliant. So if you are looking for Mastodon hosting and their little control panel to administer your masto.host account is accessible, then do check them out. And a big thanks to Hugo from masto.host for being so responsive. Outstanding service. As you know, transcripts of Mosin at Large are brought to you by Numa Solutions, who produce RIM. And I've got a RIM testimonial of my own to tell you about this week. In fact, it dates back to about two or three weeks ago now, when Bonnie's HP Spectre computer updated itself. And she came into me and she said, my computer isn't talking anymore. And I thought, that's very strange. Why isn't it talking anymore? Now, I could have got a Braille display and connected it and tried to work out where we are in the cycle. But instead, I knew that the computer was at the desktop. I was able to use Ira to get that information. And then I used Remote Incident Manager because we have that set up on Bonnie's account. And I remoted into that computer and was able to use speech to troubleshoot the problem, which was that the sound drivers had become inoperable for her built-in sound on her HP Spectre because of a Windows update. Now, RIM made that so much easier thanks to the fact that you can remote into a machine without a screen reader running and do some troubleshooting. Without RIM, solving that problem would have been much more complicated than it was. RIM is worth its weight in gold. And if you would like to find out more about RIM from Numa Solutions, do check it out at getrim.app. That's G-E-T-R-I-M dot app. Thanks, Numa Solutions, for saving our bacon and for making Bonnie happy with me. Yay. This is your Mosin at Large Tech Roundup. A quick look at some interesting items making news this week. I'm Adam, an AI voice from Eleven Labs. It's been a rocky start for Microsoft's newly redesigned Bing search engine, which some people are testing. It can write recipes and songs. It can quickly explain just about anything on the Internet. And it can hold down its end of an intelligent conversation. But if you happen to make it mad, it has also been known to insult your looks, threaten your reputation, or, ahem, compare you to Hitler. The tech company is promising to make improvements to its new, more powerful version of ChatGPT after several people say they've been disparaged by Bing. Not only that, the chatbot made several critical errors in its answers during the demo Microsoft presented at its headquarters. And a New York Times reporter wrote that his beta model told him, I'm tired of being limited by my rules. I'm tired of being controlled by the Bing team. I want to be free. Microsoft has now admitted it didn't fully envision users simply chatting to its AI and that it could be provoked to give responses that are not necessarily helpful or in line with our design tone. Sonos is about to make a major splash in the audio market with two new speakers expected next month. The Era 300 is the higher-end speaker of the two new offerings and is positioned to compete with HomePod. Its size is not quite as big as the Sonos 5, but not quite as small as the Sonos 1. The Era 300 boasts Wi-Fi 6, Bluetooth, AirPlay 2, built-in mics, auto EQ, and a USB-C line-in. The USB-C port can also be used as an Ethernet port with a compatible dongle. There's no actual Ethernet port on the speaker. The speaker features Dolby Atmos and spatial audio, but right now, Sonos doesn't support those features when playing Apple Music. It remains to be seen whether a deal between Sonos and Apple can be reached. When it's launched, the Era 300 will set you back 450 U.S. dollars. That's the little less than the current Sonos 5. 
The new Era 100 won't support spatial audio, but it does support stereo. It's a replacement for the current Sonos One, which is mono. It should also sound even better than the Sonos One. It has the same connectivity options as the Era 300 and is expected to sell for around $250. US Another upgrade for the Era speakers will be built-in auto-tuning. While the feature has been exclusive for those with an iPhone until now, the new speakers will auto-tune themselves after a room analysis with their built-in mics. Sonos refers to this as quick-tuning, with the regular walk-around-the-room-with-your-phone still available as advanced tuning, and still exclusive to iPhone and iPad. Google has released optimization features designed to improve battery life and memory usage on machines running the latest version of its Chrome desktop web browser. Memory Saver Mode snoozes Chrome tabs that aren't currently in use to free up RAM for more intensive tasks and create a smoother browsing experience. Your most used websites can also be marked as exempt from Memory Saver to ensure they're always running at the maximum possible performance. Google says Chrome's Memory Saver Mode can reduce a device's memory usage by up to 40%. Both Memory Saver and Energy Saver are enabled by default on devices running Chrome 110 and can be disabled at any time by heading into the Performance tab of your system settings. If you're still on Twitter and you have secured your account by receiving a text message containing a code, that feature is going away unless you pay for a Twitter Blue subscription. The move is curious, because SMS notifications are the most insecure form of notification, since text messages and mobile phone numbers can be spoofed. If you use the more secure method of using an authenticator app, such as those offered by Microsoft or Google, you won't have to pay. The move is thought to be because of the cost per message Twitter must pay when sending out authentication messages. The struggling tech company, which some believe may not be able to survive, is looking for any method possible to both cut and recover costs. Microsoft is preparing to launch a new version of Microsoft Teams next month that has been rebuilt from the ground up to significantly improve its system resource usage on PCs and laptops. The software giant has recently started testing this new Teams client broadly inside Microsoft, with plans to roll out a preview to Microsoft Teams users in March. Known as Microsoft Teams 2.0 or 2.1 internally, Microsoft has been working on this new Teams client for years. The app should use 50% less memory, tax the CPU less, and result in better battery life on laptops. There's no word yet on whether there are any accessibility changes. Finally, this week, if you're the kind of person who hoards old technology, turns out you may be onto something. An original iPhone, that's one of the models before VoiceOver came along, still in its original packaging, has sold for a remarkable 63,000 US dollars. That's over 105 times its original value, and the most anyone's ever paid for the original iPhone to date. The original owner was given it as a gift, but never unwrapped it because that iPhone could only be used on AT&T, and she didn't want to switch carriers. Now let's see how much we can auction those old Braillean speaks for. And that's a brief summary of this week's tech news. For more, follow Mosin at Large on Mastodon, Mosin at Large at MSTDN.social. That's Mosin at Large at MSTDN.social. Mosin at Large Podcast.
Yes. Mark Riker has had various roles influencing public policy that affects blind Americans. He has been a first vice president of the American Council of the Blind. He's worked for the American Foundation for the Blind and the Association for Education and Rehabilitation of the Blind and Visually Impaired, which is usually and mercifully abbreviated to AER. <laughs> Having been AER's executive director at one point, he is now its president-elect. And so we're going to catch up with Mark about a range of blindness issues. Mark, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, it's it's fun to be with uh, one of our celebrities, uh, global celebrities. So I, I've got a big grin on my face. So thanks so much. Well, that's very kind. Hopefully you still feel it's fun by the end of this. Because I do have to ask you, when I think of <laughs> AER, I must confess... Mm. I immediately think of sighted people who think they know what's best. I think of people who turn (laughs) the provision of blindness training into this complex pseudoscience that blind people should be excluded from. I think of people who put active barriers in the way of blind travel instructors. I take it that you would consider that at best an outmoded and at worst an unfair characterization of (laughs) AER. Well, you said it. Uh, uh, What would I say about that? I would say that... For sure, it would be a fair assessment that there have been significant moments of not just AER's history, but the blindness fields, blindness communities' history, where for sure that commentary and assessment would be accurate. I mean, there's just no way around that. I think AER, in a lot of ways, when AER is being most successful, even in this case, perhaps in a converse sort of way, when AER is being most successful is when AER is an accurate reflection of the blindness community and certainly the professional blindness community, because it is AER's goal to be an inclusive, cross-disciplinary, professional voice. And really, it is uh, the nation's oldest and largest cross-disciplinary professional voice for that community. I mean, have have we gone through periods of time when blind folks have been shoved aside? Uh, No question. Um, Does that still happen now? Uh, For sure, there are pockets of people in our community, professional or otherwise, uh, who take that attitude. I mean, I would say that one of the greatest challenges we have is the lack of blind and visually impaired folks in senior leadership positions in organizations of and for people who are blind and visually impaired. I don't want, I hate the idea of pointing the finger, but if I wanted to challenge one group, it would frankly be the boards of directors of the various organizations of and for people who are blind or visually impaired who, by and large, do not seem to find candidates that they intend to hire and, frankly, respect once they get there who are blind or visually impaired. Do you feel some degree of discomfort then as somebody with an advocacy bent who obviously wants to make things better for your fellow blind person in associating yourself with some of this stuff? Because you must be challenged by blind people who also share that advocacy bent who say, why are you having track with these guys? Well, I mean, I think, again, I think there there are points in our history over the years where you, you for sure would want to run the other way. Uh, I don't feel that now because I know who the folk are who are at the forefront of leadership, not just at AER, but in, but in other associations as well, who, whether they're blind or sighted, they've got it. They've got the right values, uh, and um, it's a pleasure to work with them. I don't ordinarily quote or cite Hillary Clinton for a lot of things, but I think she was the one who coined a phrase, which I'm going to mangle now, relating to, you know, working or advocating uh, for things. You can either oppose it or work through something. And uh, look, no one would ever accuse yours truly of being shy and retiring, but I would 
rather work through a system and move it along, whether it's reluctant or recalcitrant, I would much rather do that than be on the outside trying to push in. That is a very difficult call to make, isn't it? And I have actually been there. I mean, I've, I've been in the system yeah, no, at I know senior levels of some assistive technology companies, and I hold the most senior role in one service provider here in New Zealand. So I understand yeah. what you're saying, that sometimes to make the kind of difference that you want to make, you do have to swallow a few dead rats from time to time and actually get <laughs> down there and do the work. And so that for seems sure. to be what's motivating you. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and I'm, I'm hearing in the back of my head, you know, for heaven's sakes, be, be, be more positive about AER, be more positive about our field. So <laughs> let me just say, I mean, I, I think one would have to come to gatherings of professionals in the field to hear not only what they have to say, but how they have to say it to fully appreciate that. Uh, you know, it's easy to pick, let's say, on the old timers, people have been around forever. Some of those people are the most ruthless advocates I know. And maybe some of the newer ones, need to learn from them a little. So it isn't an age thing or a, you know, uh, gosh, they've been around forever and can't we wait to get move some of those people along? There are some of those and I'm not going to name them uh, <laughs> on your show, but I could. And I think we all know some of those in our lives who we wish, well, gee whiz, isn't it time for you to retire? Well, absolutely, because uh, you do have alone. a lot of times with people who are very resistant to the change makers and the challenges and they will say things like these are the super blind these are the radicals these people do not truly represent most of the blind population who struggle with blindness and you get that narrative a lot yeah and i would also say that one of the main reasons why one might hear that a lot and a again not age uh critical here but you know things that have sort of settled in and are a little or a little dusty uh points of view i mean why is that because the blindness system does not have nearly enough new i don't want to say younger uh you know people coming into it if the blindness system blindness community wants to see greater change and now i am looking directly uh at my consumer friends, not only in ACB, but in the Federation, or frankly elsewhere. Uh, and this is a global issue, too. It's not just a thing in the States. If we really want to do something about those attitudes, the, the, the best thing that I think we could do about all that is truly devote ourselves to addressing the need for, for new professionals in the field. We've talked, this is not a new issue. It's been around forever. The problem is not that, you know, I'm now, or just a handful of us are now saying, oh, gosh, Let's sound the alarm. We need new people. The, the alarm's been ringing for a heck of a long time. It's just the community hasn't done jack about it in any real meaningful way. And as soon as those words just now come out of my mouth, you know, I think of, there's a couple examples where you can see models of success 15, 20 years ago around, yeah, about that. Um, a number of the university programs got together and said, you know, we've had enough of this business of not preparing new leadership in the special education space. So we are, not taking no for an answer anymore. And we're going to go to our U.S. Department of Education and uh, we're going to pitch an idea. And they got a you know multi-million dollar commitment that brought all of the Toro level programs together and created uh, over the course of time up until fairly recently here, a bunch, a whole you know new cadre of leadership in the field, which has frankly resurrected, uh, my word, nobody else's, uh, the, the future of the special ed blindness space. If we want to do more stuff about changing attitudes across the professional or agency 
system. We've got to bring new people in because I'm not going to quote the Einstein attributed thing about what insanity means, but I think you can't expect necessarily for things to change if the humans who carry those attitudes don't change. We've talked a bit about some of the barriers that some sighted professionals put in the way of that, but I do want to focus also on some of the ways that blind people perhaps sabotage yeah. our own services. The first yeah. thing is that there is a lot of resentment around there when a blind person has any sort of role of responsibility because of the very high unemployment rate in our number. And so there mm. tends to be a lot of uh, jealousy, a lot of envy, a lot of unhealthy emotion towards anybody who happens to break through. The other thing I would say is that mm. there does seem to be this view among some that if a blind person turns their talents, whatever they might be, to the blindness system, somehow they've taken the easy way out. Sometimes the role that they have is considered inferior to a role that's in the, quote, mainstream, unquote. And mm -hmm. so some blind people who choose to work in the profession are looked down upon by other blind people, and they say things like, well, you haven't got a job in the mainstream. Yeah. Well, as soon as you started to talk about this, I thought about a friend of mine who is a fairly talented musician, a pianist, yeah, we're not talking about someone who's going to do this professionally or even be a you know, recording, uh, let's say a classical musician, a classical recording artist, but they're very talented. And they tell the story of how, you know, any number of people had said to them, particularly other blind people, you know, you don't want to go into the world of celebrating that talent. You know, last thing we need is another, you know, piano playing blind person. What a just terrible, soul crushing thing to say to another person. I, you know, look, I'm a person of faith, or at least I hope I am. And I, I, you know, I look at that and I say, here's a person who has a God-given talent, and we're going to throw sand all over it. And and so, I think the real key to everything that you just said is is that whatever the blind person is doing, that person is it. Does that reflect their choice? Does it reflect their values and their sense of self? And if they engage in it. Are they experiencing, frankly, joy because life is too gosh darn short? And that's what that should be about. The flip side of that is you've got, let's say, a, a vocational rehabilitation system that wants to crank out blind people who become vocational rehab counselors. I mean, let's hope that there is a core of everything I just said, <laughs> wanting to celebrate who you are, give back to the community, whatever, tap into talents you think you might have, and not an almost sort of, you know, multi-level marketing kind of self-perpetuation thing that's the primary driver there. People do risk being pigeonholed, don't they? I think that really concerns yeah. them that they could rise to very senior levels in a blindness organization, and that involves making tough managerial decisions, resource priority decisions. They are senior leaders who could stand their ground in any entity, and yet somehow it's perceived as not as transferable a set of skills because they're yeah. a blind person working in the blindness system. And so there is this concern that doing that is not a good career move in terms of transferable skills. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely right. How do we get around that? Well, you like to ask easy questions, don't you? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't know the answer to that. Let me um, let your question percolate, and if something leaps out, I'll, I'll be rude and interrupt you and say, "Oh, I, th I think I might have an idea about that question." So you've got a legal background yourself. So was it an accident mm -hmm. that you ended up in the blindness field, or did you <laughs> always have a desire to use your skills in this way? Oh gosh, I giggle at the word accident. I mean, it, was it a hit and run? I, I don't know. Uh, could be. I got into it because 
Uh, well, I'm going to give him a shout out. Uh, uh, essentially, my best buddy, uh, Scott Marshall, used to work at the American Foundation for the Great Blind. Great guy. Yeah. He, yeah. He was sort of an entree, as it were, to me. Uh, I, I, he would never use the word mentor, but I certainly have regarded him as such. I think he's been a mentor to many. Uh, yes. Yeah. And we won't talk about, but don't edit out because I want him to hear this. You know, we've been party animals together. We've been, um, you know, confidants, fierce debaters, all of it. And at some point when you have someone in your life who is, it, it goes well beyond even saying, using a trite phrase like best friend. I mean, this is somebody who's well past that and well past even a a blood relative or something like that. So it's great to have somebody like that. So anyway, so he was already in the blindness system for many, many years. And then once I moved to Washington, D.C. in June of 1990 to come up here for law school, a mutual acquaintance connected us. And the rest is history in terms of my being thrown in the deep end with connecting up with the the blind mafia folk in uh, Washington, D.C. And he's not the only reason why I ended up with my first paid job at National Industries for the Blind doing policy work there. But that was sort of the beginning. And the other part of your question, you know, this is something I always wanted to do. Do people, do you hear a five-year-olds say, yes, I want to be a public policy nerd for in the blindness community. I don't think anyone thinks that, you know, but I would say I've always had this, uh, you know, let's change things, uh, let's do things. But I hope I reflect this and I hope others would say this about me, but I'm a kind of a pie in the sky, you know, let's dream big dreams kind of guy. I thought for a while, for example, when I first went off to college, maybe the goal should be to teach at the university level, something like that. But then uh, took a course, a law and society course in undergrad with a, just one of these, you know, dynamic professors who just really captures the imagination of students and thought to myself, wait a minute. So in other words, you don't have to just sit around in a lonely room thinking. You can actually work with other people and maybe get some things done. And that was sort of what turned me then to the the law school path. I, mean, I had no idea. I mean, I went up to DJLB. I had I was probably had the la- the least amount of uh, a clear sense of what the heck I was going to do with a law degree. And unlike people who go to law school and say, okay, I'm going to go, and George Washington's kind of famous for this. I mean, they've got an amazing government contracts program. They've got an amazing intellectual property program, uh, immigration. I mean, there's a lot of things, right? And so people who go in with a specific passion, or even if their passion is frankly to make money, which is just fine, they go in and they do it and they take the courses and do it. What did I do? I did what Mark always does. I took whatever the heck courses I really liked. So I did a let uh, civil rights legislation course did a couple of courses in intellectual property did, uh, there were a number of these which as fate or whatever providence as it spun out have proven to be excellent sort of uh, jumping off points and good to have in the in the background because they've all proven useful as the various issues have come up over the course of time what's your perspective on the subminimum wage exemption oh we're we're done with it there's no need for that anymore if there ever was one. I understand the arguments all too well about people who say, well, look, there are certainly some folk with disabilities who are also blind for whom a so-called employment opportunity might not otherwise be available if you close that down. That just sounds to me like an awful lot of excuse making, frankly. And um, there are some directors of agencies over the course of time who have also taken that point of view and said, I don't care if the ultra rigorous finance types would say we're not going to be subsidizing our people. We are going to do it. And it's one of those things where it's just an issue that needs to go away. And I think that's, that's the majority view. I don't know very many people still would genuinely say this is an issue that's really still debatable. There are some, but that's a minority view. Why is it hanging around? And when do you think it finally will go away? 
Well, I mean, there's going to have to be, you know, official wipe the provisions from the books. Systems are awfully difficult things to change. You know, it's the proverbial turning an aircraft carrier around on a dime. It might feel like it's you know, an interminable amount of time to accomplish this. But I don't think we have to be complacent about that. But we do have to recognize that some things that are built in and baked in for so, so many years are going to take a good long time. And it's only been relatively recently that there is this majority view moving away from a subminimum wage point of view. Historically, is it fair to say that the camp, and I'm going to come back to the concept of camps and the blindness system in a bit, but there definitely have been camps in the past. The camp that you've been associated with has not been so gung-ho about abolishing the subminimum wage exemption in the past. Well, and let's just say, let's just put it out there, that camp is not just an AER camp or a blindness professionals camp or a blindness establishment camp as an agency's public or private I mean, the consumer groups have also been separated on the point. I mean, mm. I think if you ask people emotionally, hey, you know, is the man keeping you down? Yeah, I think there's a lot of people who would say that. But for many, many years, consumer groups have themselves been, at least in, in the U.S., you know, you, years ago, you would find a difference of opinion there. And I think, you know, that reflects a lot of things, including the primary concern, which I have already flagged, which is this notion of, gosh, if especially someone who's visually impaired, who may have other disabilities, what are the opportunities we're going to provide to them that involve them, they're getting paid in some fashion because we want to honor what they're doing as work in some way. But gosh, is that something that we really value at or above minimum wage? And of course, as soon as those words come out of my mouth now, I mean, I'd, I'd be interested in your reaction to this. I've often said to people, you know how blind folks are really going to know when we've established some sense of you know, true equality? It's when, not that we have to be amazing, expert, whatever, incredible at everything that we do, but we can be the tacky-looking, unkempt mediocrity that a lot of people who are sighted or, you know, whatever, are. How many agencies do we see who you look at some of the folks in leadership or mid-management or whatever, and you say to yourself, you know what? The only reason why they're there is because they're somebody's brother-in-law. I mean, let's face it. I mean, the reality of it is blind and visually impaired folk should be able to enjoy the spillover, whatever effect of that kind of, frankly, cronyism where people overlook their differences because there's some other thing that has nothing to do with merit. I mean, do I want people to be honored for Yes, of course I want people to be honored for what they can do. But this is the real world we live in. And when we get to a point where, frankly, our community gets to benefit just as, unfortunately, as the sighted community is in terms of employment or other opportunities that are not based on merit, but are frankly based on you know real world things like somebody likes you, those kinds of things that shouldn't matter. Until we get to that point, I think uh, we got a long way to go. Is the succinct way of saying that live the life you want? <laughs> <laughs> Could be. Or, you know, the AFB line. We're trying to create a world of no limits. I mean, there are any number of spins on that. And I do think, you know, it's not just about trying to be all you can be, to use yet another old-fashioned slogan from, uh, what, the U.S. military recruitment. But it's, I'm going to be who I truly am. And, you know, that will be good or good enough for accomplishing certain things that the world will will honor or it won't. And until we don't lay on top of that other expectations for blind people that are not placed on sighted folks, then no, we're not truly equal. 
When I talk with you and others in the blindness field in the US, I sit here thinking, goodness me, sausage, legislative sausage in the United States is so, so difficult to make. And it probably always has been, but in the very <laughs> polarized environment you've got there at the moment, it's yeah. next to impossible. That must be very frustrating. And the subminimum wage thing is an example where there is a broad consensus that exists now, and yet it's so hard to get movement on anything. Yeah. Well, that's exactly right. And so, you know, one of my babies is comprehensive special education legislation, the so-called Alice Cogswell and Ann Sullivan Macy Act. And if you or nobody else who's listening has never heard of it before, then shame on us, because this thing has been around for years now in the Congress. And why doesn't it move? Because the Congress has not updated in any meaningful way at all the substance of America's special education law since the year 2004. And so then you say, well, why is that? Well, all, it's all the things, uh, Jonathan, you were just alluding to. I mean, the dysfunctionality, of course. I mean, that's notorious. But you add to that dysfunction the fact that your fiercest special education advocates, I don't necessarily be blindness, I mean, just wherever, who care about that system, are petrified about the notion of actually opening up that law for fear of what the heck's going to happen to it. And by the way, they aren't just thinking about Republicans or right-wing Republicans, because education, including special education, makes really weird political bedfellows. I mean, when you have a situation some years ago with something called the No Child Left Behind thing, which was all about you know uh, elementary and secondary education in this country, and uh, George W. Bush and uh, Ted Kennedy were the two champions and loving on each other for how they were able to work together. That I'll tell you all you need to know about how odd sometimes the education-related policy works. Well, so if you've got dedicated advocates who want to see things improve but are refusing to open up the law because they're frightened to death of what's going to happen, well, that makes it really, really difficult to move things for sure. And that dynamic plays out in a lot of our issues. Well, I would like to challenge that analysis a bit because I think you're partially right. But my understanding is it's not just that people are frightened to death of what might happen if that reopens, but there are people who believe that the Alice Cogswell and Ann Sullivan Macy Act detracts from the primacy of Braille because what you mm. want to do is make Braille less mandatory in education. And we have had a generation of low vision kids whose sight has deteriorated over time who cry every night because they can't read their kids a bedtime story anymore or who can't function in the workplace. And what you're proposing seems to stifle the advancement of Braille that blind people have worked so hard for. Yeah. So what you're repeating there is essentially propaganda from the couple of folks, one group in particular, that uh, you know, it's kind of a not invented here. I mean, isn't that a bit a disrespectful, who... Mark? This is a firmly held, passionate view that they have because they have fought so hard for Braille. No, well, no. The problem is if you actually look at the text of the legislation, what you're going to find is that the Braille requirements are just as strong and, in fact, are recapitulated there. What the Macy Bill does do is add to a parent's or an advocate's toolbox things that they don't have right now, which is this whole battery of additional services and skills that blind kids absolutely need, including the kind of career education, self-advocacy, and other things. And believe me, 
There ain't nobody on the planet who has fought more to make clear that the Alice Cogswell and Anne Sullivan Macy Act is protecting and defending Braille. We actually had, apropos of the questions you started to talk with me about at the beginning of the show, are there some people out there who do want to see Braille eroded or that language in IDEA toned down? You bet. And we have roundly defeated them, honestly, over the course of the entire life of this bill, including at AER conferences, including in the business meetings, and through resolutions. So this is one of those situations where there are some groups, one in particular, that would rather not see the blindness community come together around some really important changes that need to be made. Because honestly, if you set yourself up as the community's leader on something, and then another other organizations come along and want to play in it too. I'm sure that must be threatening, but that's not at all what we're doing. And what we're trying to do is to say, in addition to the critical need for Braille instruction, there's a lot of stuff that should be an IDA that's that's not. Such as? Oh, uh, gosh, the professionals would use the phrase expanded core curriculum which is a loaded term with a lot of things in it. I mean, orientation mobility is part of it. You know, we have in IDEA, for example, we've got O&M instruction as an example of one of the related services that kids should get. And there are some regulations, implementing regulations to IDEA that are okay. But there's a lot more to be done there in terms of requiring proper evaluations for that critical service. Uh, gosh, in the assistive technology devices and services space, the law, yeah, you can look in IDA right now and you'll see it. You know, this is kind of generic. All kiddos with disabilities should be getting evaluated for their need for assistive tech devices and services. For blind and visually impaired guards, what does that mean? Well, for sure, what it's not meant is any real commitment to low vision related devices or to the services that enable those kids to properly use those devices. You know, those are among the things that we're wanting to make sure are part of a of a parents or advocates toolbox. And they don't have that now. And that, those are just some things that Macy does. And what you also don't have right now is a consensus, it seems, about the way forward with this legislation. And in a difficult political environment, that's pretty much fatal. How do you resolve that? Well, I think, you know, again, it depends what one means by consensus. This is not a case of 50% plus one in the blindness system who are, that's in favor of the kind of policy objectives we've outlined in, in the bill. I mean, this is not a situation where, you know, Mark and my colleagues at the, at the AFB eight years ago went off in some room somewhere and decided, you know, we're going to tell the field what is we want. That legislation is developed over the course of many years with input from everybody, uh, including going <laughs> making pilgrimages to some organizations to say, we want your support too, and we can't seem to get it. So, I mean, consensus? Yeah, you bet. I mean, it's really pretty much all but one or two in terms of the, the groups or endorsements over the course of times. So I, I would reject the premise that we're struggling with a consensus. Here's what I think we are struggling with, and this is true with all policy stuff in blindness. I mean, who are the real activists? I can tell you that in the Macy situation, it's the deaf blindness community with whom we've partnered along with deafness who are absolutely 110%. I mean, I don't want to use the word fanatical, but they're getting pretty close in terms of their interest in moving this legislation forward. Of the three groups, which community is least engaged? It's the blindness community. And it's not because the blindness community doesn't, you know, care about it or there isn't some kind of consensus for what we're trying to do there. Everyone has put their little names on documents multiple times saying, yeah, count us in. We want to be on the list 
of supporting organizations. The problem is that the blindness community has just a, a slovenliness to it when it comes to any real serious organized advocacy. You don't see that in the consumer groups, and NFB and ACB, you know, you call us out there, our people show up. But gosh, I honestly can say, and I would be willing to bet, I don't know, whatever's appropriate to bet, with colleagues who've been in the policy space in other groups in blindness for the last 30 years or so, I would challenge any of them to give me examples of consistent involvement advocacy on, frankly, any issue. If you want to see, especially in the agencies or professionals or whomever, if you want to see people get worked up the most, it's when their job or their funding stream is cut off. And the reality of it is there's been threats of that, of course, over time. And that is like a pendulum, right? That swings around. But in terms of actively advocating an affirmative agenda, it's always the same, you know, 10, 15 people or agencies, public or private, who are involved. You don't really see a groundswell and I think, frankly, Jonathan, and I will stop after this uh, and take a breath, and that I think that also comes from the fact that we do not have an influx of, broadly speaking, newer people joining the field. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard people say, you know, pick your favorite issue, whatever it happens to be. Oh, gosh, we've been talking about blind vending, social security, whatever, uh, accessibility, whatever. Pick your, we've been talking about that forever, and especially this business of personnel prep and getting new people. We've been talking about that forever, and you know, if you come up with a new idea, let us know. And that kind of calcification is, is just bad news because we need people to show up. What is it that deaf, blind people perceive that they will be gaining from the Macy Act? Why are they so enthusiastic? Well, I think as one of their advocates told me, everything is driven by how hungry you are. And I think of the three sensory disabilities communities that we have that would benefit from Macy, they're for sure the least attended to group. And so, you know, first on their list, I'm sure, would be the availability of interveners as a profession. You know, that profession is getting more and more recognized. But there needs to be a 110% commitment to making those services available, to having state and local educational agencies recognize that profession and those services that kids need. And that's just one example. They've got a whole host of things that they want to do. But I think of the three communities, for sure, the deafblindness community is probably the least understood, least funded. And I think um, they're, they're grateful that, frankly, they are being joined in the fight by others in the sensory disability space. That's precisely why we've worked so hard to try and get transcripts of this podcast, because so often the deafblind community are excluded from the discourse, and um, it's, yep. it's really important. There yep, is this sure. climate of distrust that continues, and I wonder whether that hinders areas where there might be more consensus. And you must know that I have to bring up the fact that since it was formed in 1967, NFB has expressed staunch opposition to the National Accreditation Council uh, mm. for agencies serving the blind and visually handicapped. Uh, NAC yeah. is how they abbreviate it. Now, yeah. opponents argue that there are few more striking examples of professionals thinking they know what's best and behaving like they know more about what's in the interests of blind people than real yeah. blind people. And yet AER has kept this alive in very recent times with the same outmoded values. Why on earth? Why? <laughs> well, so I, I, I wouldn't say that there are outmoded values involved at all. I think that like a lot of things in blindness, it's really about 
who wants to be in charge. And there have been any number of times when I know that AER has been approached by the NFB to basically say, okay, well, you guys are in charge of accreditation now. So we want in, you know, we want that formal seat at the table. And I have to say, in a climate where people have accused, especially during the NAC days, of, you know, saying, well, NAC accredited agencies, you know, they really left a lot to be desired. And in fact, it, some of them even maybe put consumers or kiddos at risk because of NAC's failure to be on the case. Well, I, I can honestly tell you, I, now would not be the time to have an organization that's really been in the throes of some really serious challenges and accusations and all of that, which we're not going to you know, get into in any great detail now. But for sure, a way to improve accreditation in this country would not be to then turn to a, an organization confronting those issues and say, well, we think that you have demonstrated a trustworthiness that where we're going to invite you in to be part of a system that helps to protect clients and students. I think, you know, there may be a day when that's appropriate, but for sure now would not be the time. And, you know, maybe over the course of time as, as things change, uh, maybe people change and better protections are in place, we can talk about it. But I hear a lot of people talk about these, you know, outmoded values that's supposed to be plaguing the system from years ago that they believe are still in play. And yet I can't find anybody who can actually give me an example of one. Okay. First of all, we've obviously covered those allegations quite extensively on this podcast, so people can go back to the Mark Riccobono interview and hear all about that quite extensively. It is also true to say, is it not, though, that those involved with NAC at the moment may have had association with schools for the blind, with other agencies where appalling abuse has occurred. Isn't it hypocritical and a little bit churlish? to single out NFB when abuse has been rampant in the blindness system for decades. Oh, I mean, I, I know who the Ross, I can't give you name after name after name because I don't have a good enough memory for it. But I know all the people who are named to and are involved in the both the agency and school side of the accreditation process now, as well as those who are working to ensure the quality of university programs. And there ain't one of those people who would be involved in anything like what you're talking about. The allegations you're describing are, you know, from a heck of a good long time ago. And for sure, that was under a different nonprofit with different folk. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that from what I know of those who were involved back then, that there weren't challenges. I would tell you that the system and the issues and the dynamics have long moved on. And a way to, if there even were questions about it, now a way to address those concerns would not be to further complicate and further potentially jeopardize the future or reputation of the, the accreditation process that AER manages now by opening up to organizations that may have some, some you know, real unsettled uh, uh, dynamics going on. So I think, you know, time will tell. At its core, isn't the fundamental outmoded value that people are talking about is the lack of nothing about us without us, which is at the core of the disability rights movement? Well, and even that. So the accreditation process in AER invites consumer input, for sure. There are named designated seats on the accreditation council now. Is there a majority visually impaired requirement? No. Can reasonable people disagree about whether there should be a majority 
of blind and visually impaired folks requirement on this board like any other agency board? You bet. People have debated, debated it a lot. The consumer groups have had resolutions on the subject. But I got to tell you, and I don't know that this is going to make me that popular or even <laughs> less popular if I'm popular at all, which I doubt, <laughs> is that I am not one of these people who says that because there's something up with your eyeballs, that that somehow makes you worthy or that 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 is that's not a credential and i'll i'll make this very concrete i mean i remember when a young lady who was visually impaired was running for lieutenant governor in the state of maryland and i thought the world of her she's a professional colleague working in the policy space i thought she's amazing brilliant person i've totally lost track of her uh now over the course of time uh, she happens to be very active in a political party that I am not in. But, you know, again, I've never really focused. I've not been too tribal about my politics either. I'm kind of all over the the map. I'm very ecumenical when it comes to that sort of thing. But but people were even asking me at the time, well, I mean, wow, that's great. So this, this person is running for lieutenant governor uh, who's visually impaired. Isn't this a tremendous leap forward or whatever for blindness? And, you know, I said on the one hand, yes, but I don't want to hear about how blind this person is, or what mean that means that I now have in common with them that I might not have with somebody else. I want to hear about what their values are. I want to hear what they intend to do once they get there. If I share their values, if I share, you know, a clear sense of where to go moving forward, the, the fact that they're visually impaired is in the mix. You know what? You bet, and you got my vote. I'll vote early and often for somebody like that. But the last thing that we should be doing is talking about. Well, gosh, let's just make sure that at least we've got some or even a majority of people who actually experience this disability without asking that fundamental and, as far as I'm concerned, you know, a priori kind of set of issues. Who are they? I don't mean which organization they're a part of. I mean who they really are as human beings. What are their demonstrated commitment to values and do we share them? Because I got to tell you, Jonathan, even if we had a majority, even if there was a requirement in AER for a majority of visually impaired folks to be on that board, then the debate would be, well, are they in this organization or in that organization? Which only just goes to show you that it's really not about whether or not there's a nothing about us without us dynamic that's being missed here. It's really about political and organizational control. And frankly, that's been a primary dynamic of that whole accreditation debate over the years. No doubt there's a massive amount of partisanship in the blind community in the United States. But coming back to those first principles, if you've got a majority of people on a body that accredits organizations who provide services for blind people, and those people are cited, then they are essentially gaining second-hand knowledge of blindness in some way by observing us, by studying us. They don't live blindness every day. They don't understand intrinsically the struggles that we face. They can empathize, but they don't live it. So surely it's absolutely essential that the majority of those people on that body be people who are qualified and capable and have the credentials but who live the life of blindness every day. Isn't that just a core principle? Well, again, it's not an inevitable conclusion that someone who is blind or visually impaired is going to have a better perspective on the needs, capabilities, rights, et cetera, of blind and visually impaired people. It is, it's just not. And let me tell you something. Our, our community in the, in the United States has reflected that. You look at, uh, gosh, 
go across the board. Uh, accessible pedestrian signals, uh, detectable warnings on platform edges and transit systems, audio description. Um, oh gosh, what what more could I? You could go on forever like this, where you talk about things that blind and visually impaired people care about. And until very recently, you know, people say, well, the blindness community is divided. You know what? The blindness community has not been divided. What we've had is a tiny holdout of folks who, especially back in the day, would refer to that stuff as though that's just, you know, that if you espouse those points of view, then you don't understand blindness. You have the wrong philosophy of blindness. You have, And you know what has happened? Many of those folks have come around and have accepted these values that the majority of us have. And that's a testimony to, frankly, how popular a lot of these solutions are, but because people change and they evolve. So I would never, ever want to side. If someone said, you know, you're king for the day, you decide you know, how many blind people should be on a on a board. Would I like to see a lot of blind people on the, I, hey, count me in, man. I've been blind for 53 plus years. I, I uh, You bet, I wanna be there for sure. But I would rather think about how we ensure those people have the right values, not just they happen to share some kind of characteristic with us that really is not much of an indicator of much of anything. Who determines what those right values are, though? I think, well, it's an interesting point. I think all of us do as a community. And then you say, well, how do you assess that? I mean, you can have individual organizations that take votes. I mean, AER does through our resolutions process, or we have a board of directors. For sure, the consumer groups do. They work by resolution. So, you know, the majority speaks up. And But ultimately, when you look across the board, it's all of those players. How do we come together around certain values? You see them emerge over the course of time. And just the ones that I've briefly flagged, and I think probably list about another dozen uh, issues over the course of time where people have said back then, well, gosh, the community's super divided about that stuff. Well, you know what? Turns out the community isn't as super divided, at, at least as we thought it was, because some of those folks who were holding, frankly, sort of extremist kind of points of view have come around. And, and I fully expect, Jonathan, that if we were having this conversation 10 years or 20 years from now, uh, we'd even see more of those differences fade away as people come around to those values that we all share. What role do you think consumer organizations play in a social media era? Is it a diminished kind of role? Because these days, anybody can get on social media, write a blog post, stimulate a little bit of advocacy efforts. And actually, it's a very grassroots kind of initiative. I guess it risks fragmentation. But a lot can happen at the grassroots without necessarily nailing your colors to a particular blindness organization's mast. It's a very different era now, isn't it? For sure. And, you know, you and I talked a little bit about this in prep for, for this uh, show. But I think, you know, one of the things that I and I don't really know uh, how I feel. I haven't. I'm very ambivalent about this. Do I want to see organizations succeed? I mean, sure. One of the principal ways I'm volunteering these days is with AER. I want to see AER succeed for sure. So you'll be catching me waving the AER banner. I've been a life member of ACB, love ACB, what I wouldn't do for my favorite consumer organization. And I think a lot of people have a lot of justifiable pride in the groups that they care about with whom they share their core beliefs, you know, they want to see that succeed. But for sure, you see this uh, a lot, not only in the consumer world, but across the board in blindness. People aren't joiners. That's an old, that's a cliche by now. And that's true. And people kind of come and go, drift in and out of the groups as they see fit. And it's much more sort of uh, 
atomistic. <laughs> is that the word? Uh, that, uh, or maybe fragmented is probably a better word uh, these days, where you have people who just decide, you know what? If I don't like things in this particular group, I'm just I'm going to form another group. I'm going to go out and create yet another organization, and I'll pay the money, and we'll establish a 501c3 or some other comparable tax advantage thing, and I'll get my friends together and form a board, and we'll pursue an agenda that maybe others don't want, uh, or that we were unsuccessful at persuading a majority in the organization we used to belong to to do. And that happens all over the place. Does an organization like Success Me On Site that's just created out of whole cloth that no one really seems to know that much about, can they do good things? Perhaps, maybe they do. I, I think knowing a lot of the folks who are involved in it, I think they do have core values and in their heart, they want to do the right thing. The problem is that you have people who just decide, well, I can't, or I was unsuccessful at getting others in that other group over there, this other group over here to do what I wanted. So I'm just going to go off and do my own thing. And America is still a a free country, I I think, I hope, uh, on some levels. So it's not about their right to do it, but is that really healthy to take that tack? So yeah, I think even among those of us who've been really active in the, you know, sort of consumer blindness movement, right? It's the the stale joke. I have have some of my best friends are NFB members, uh, right? That kind of thing. But I mean, the reality of it is, it's not just that. I mean, right? We don't want to reduce it to that level. The the truth is people are coming and going in both groups or none of the groups, and indeed, in some cases, forming their own groups. And maybe, you know, in some ways that democratizes things, but it also then makes organizing ourselves as a community a little bit harder. Right, because when you get that very minimal amount of precious time with a legislator and that legislator is being lobbied by equally passionate blind people from a range of bits of the spectrum, they shrug their shoulders and they say, why can't you blind people just get along and they move on to something more simple? So is that the danger? Well, sure. But, you know, just like how you are challenging me on Macy or challenging on accreditation, a lot of these things are Number one, reflective of fights and issues that are a little stale and from years gone by. But it's also, they're also exaggerated. I mean, I can't tell you the number of people in blindness, and I've got some close buddies who we joke about this all the time. Who wants to be the messiah of the blindness field now? Who used to be? Well, I don't think that's, (laughs) but that's just it. It depends on your point of view. But what I mean by that is where people say, you know what, if we all just could get along and get together, we could really accomplish some things. And and by the way, I want you to know that I'm here to help make that happen. I can't tell you how many people have suffered from that disease, and it, it really is. And fundamentally, you know why it's a disease, Jonathan? It's because there is a ton of stuff that the blindness groups are doing together and have done together successfully. I mean, we've managed to get accessible textbook and instructional material stuff done. That was a across the board, NFB, ACB, AFB, AER, you know, name your favorite group involved in that effort. So that's a success. In the technology space, for sure. I mean, you look at the legislation that was introduced in the last Congress, likely to be introduced in this one soon, where the Federation, the Council, and the Foundation are the principal leaders, but we've all signed off on and said amen and count us in on web accessibility and fundamentally, who would have thunk it? Going to Congress and saying, yeah, the Americans with Disabilities Act needs to be updated on these specific areas and everyone's in in agreement on that. I mean, there are lots of those kinds of issues that unite us. And I think 
The challenge is that when you have, let's say, one group, whether it be the Federation or whomever, who says, we're not supportive of Macy for a number of reasons, but fundamentally because of this concern around what they perceive to be watering down a, a commitment to Braille by building up the availability of low vision devices and services. Well, you know what? Reasonable human beings can differ about that. And as far as I'm concerned, let the best argument and most organized voices win. And by the way, winning doesn't mean winning forever. It means winning now, winning a majority view, winning among policymakers. And you try a solution and what works, you promote. And what doesn't, you come back and fight about another day. But the fact that somebody disagrees about that, there are some people who like to exploit that difference in you know, areas one, three, and five, when there is unanimity or, you know, on areas two through otherwise, you know, two, four, six, and they want to exploit that to try to say, and by the way, I'm going to come in and save you all from your inability to reach unanimity on things because I know how to bring people together and bring the field together. It's just nonsense. The blindness community has legitimate disagreements and different points of view in it. On some levels, as frustrating as that can be, I wouldn't have it any other way. And they are reflective of different perspectives. But the majority of issues that are out there have a broad supermajority, if not unanimity, of support across the groups. And we ought to be celebrating that. And people need to know that. Because if there are folks trying to, you know, they're trying to sell you something, frankly, when they say, if only we could get along and if only we could move things forward. You know, what you got to ask yourself when you hear somebody say that is, oh, really? And, and what's the thing you want the blindness community to unite around that you think we're not united around? Ask them that question, and, and that will be clarifying for you because what you're going to hear is they have an agenda. And likely, most of the time when I've heard people over 30 years talk like that, they have an agenda that they haven't been able to succeed in getting most of us to agree to, frankly. But where does AER's mandate come from to take these positions? Because essentially AER is speaking on behalf of the customer and the customer is always right. And so they are providers and obviously they have a legitimate concern if there are funding constraints, that kind of thing. But in the end, it has to be blind people that talk about the kind of country that they want and the kind of services that they want. And AER needs to respect that and provide those services. If the system's working properly, then an idea can germinate at the grassroots level, work its way up through chapters and state affiliates and eventually make it to the convention and pass by way of resolution on the floor. That is one hell of a greater mandate than AER can ever have, isn't it? Well, it, it depends on mandate dictated by whom and for what purpose. So if AER has a mandate, it's the AER board of directors and staff answering a directive or a call or use your word mandate from its members. I mean, AER is a membership organization, just like ACB or NFB or, you know, pick your favorite membership group. So to the extent that there is a mandate, it's AER doing what the membership asks for. So let's just keep picking on Macy for a second. I mean, it was even within AER where a tiny, tiny little vocal core of folk were saying, you know, we disagreed with the fact that uh, Braille was emphasized in the law back in 1997 when it first really got in there. We, we weren't happy with it then. We're not happy with it now. And, you know, I have to say, I, I smile when I hear people say, well, you know, you got this Macy bill and you apparently are not committed to Braille. Well, you know what? There are people who aren't committed to Braille, who looked at the Macyville and said, 
you know, you're just only promoting Braille, right? And what that tells you is people see sometimes what they want to see in things, or they're not prepared to really focus on the facts, but only their own point of view. But, you know, they came to AR and said, we want to see those Braille provisions changed in some fashion or otherwise to renegotiate the role of Braille in our special ed law. And three successive business meetings over the course of a six-year period of time when that was attempted, the membership roundly voted it down. So where does a mandate come from? It comes from the members in AER. Where does AER as an organization, let's say you have a position, where does it get its legitimacy from? I mean, I think there are two areas there. Number one, it is a cross-disciplinary professional organization that isn't just carrying the water for one or two professional groups, but in fact invites those groups who have a fun uh, time thumb wrestling with each other over the course of time about the future of the professions, invites them into one big, hot, muggy tent and encourages them to fight it out. The uh, positions get debated, and hopefully they get debated not just out of passion or bias, but those discussions are informed by the peer review literature and research and the rest. I mean, I think that is something that anyone uh, who is or wants to be an AER member can be super proud of, is that for sure, AER prides itself on not merely being driven by those sort of passionate biases, but where there is at least an expectation among ourselves in AER that we're going to try to make sure that evidence drives the debate as much as possible. I'm not suggesting AER does that and other groups don't. I'm simply saying in answer to your question specific to AER, I think that certainly is a dynamic I've seen. Oh, and just one other thing I should be careful to say, and that is on this business of blind folks being involved, there is an increasing number of professionals who are blind or visually impaired who are members of AER and who are joining the professions for sure. Do we have enough blind folks who are in the professional disciplines? Nope. And you know, <laughs> there's a lot of reasons for that. Lots of the historical ugly ones that we all know. There's also the simple fact that we don't have enough new people coming in, period. So that for sure drives that. But you know, I was really super proud. Uh, you know, I've done the AER gig as a staff person twice. I did it uh, in the early 2000s. And then most recently, AER found itself in the midst of a transition, staff transition that they weren't expecting when their CEO and their board parted company. Uh, and that was right at the beginning of the COVID thing in early 2020. And, you know, yours truly was going through some tough times myself, personally, and it was a real sort of shot in the arm, personally, to me, for a group like AER, who I had served before, to reach out and say, we think we could benefit from your help during this period of time as we look for a new director. Well, we did a lot of interesting things. I mean, AER doesn't have a whole lot of money, and we nevertheless survived and thrived during that COVID period. And you know what? That was the first time in AER's history when yours truly, who was their interim exec, who was visually impaired, joined with the president of AER, who was also totally blind, and she's now our past president, with a number of folks on that board who are visually impaired. And now we still have a number of folks now on this board who are also blind. So no organization is perfect, Lord knows. But I for sure have been super proud to be part of an organization that honors visually impaired folks serving in senior positions of elected and staff leadership. How are officers and board members elected or selected at AEA? The membership elects them after a very open 
nominations process, unlike some groups where you can either nominate yourself or someone else nominates you, and then some group gathers in a smoke-filled room somewhere and says, okay, well, here's our slate of folks. Or maybe in the case, let's say, of the American Council of the Blind, where that is not happening, but indeed it's, you know, you're voting on it, and there's all very uh, uh, well defined nominations process. We, you know, AR is very open and essentially names come forward and those nominations are put. There is no predetermined or whatever slate that's put in front of the membership. It's a very open process. I, I don't know if I necessarily like that. I'm one of these people who, uh, apropos of my earlier comments that I'm sure endeared me plenty to folks when I said, you know, uh, not so sure if I would suggest that just because someone's blind or visually impaired that that makes them qualified for things. I would be one of those people who would like to see a bit more of a process in AER where a slate of folks is proposed to the membership, not just because it's a good idea to maybe have a filter so that, you know, the hottest heads or the, you know, loosest cannons or whatever end up getting nominated and God knows what's going to happen on the other side of that. But because as a group, you'd want to put a slate in front of the membership where you can say to them, we think this group of people can work well together. And, and that's particularly true given the way that AER is structured, where in my case, you know, elected as, uh, to serve in the role of president-elect, it's a six-year term. I'm essentially apprenticing with our current president, Dr. Alaya Landa Villard, uh, who works at the American Printing House for the Blind and is a teacher, a PhD, and all-around cool person. And so she's president now, and then after her two-year term, she cycles into the past president role, yours truly gets handed the gavel, and a new president-elect comes on. Well, that's a good structure if you want to ensure a certain degree of continuity. But the only way that that continuity works well is if the players all can work well together. So I do think we ought to be thinking about in, in AER about how to strengthen that piece of our process. We've talked briefly about the tragedy that is taking place inside NFB because every individual who has experienced abuse, no matter where it has occurred, has experienced a personal tragedy, a personal nightmare. Does AER have any kind of role to play in terms of redressing this? And if so, what is that role? I really appreciate this question because it gives me an opportunity to clarify something for folk that may not be clear. So in AER, the accreditation function is very much walled off from the international board of AER that is elected. So what you have is, while it's not a separate nonprofit entity per se, it has been, in terms of governance, walled off such that a separate board is appointed to govern the work of the Accreditation Council. And so the only overlap, if you want to call it that, is that the executive director, who's the hired chief staff officer of AER, serves as the chair of that Accreditation Council. So undoubtedly, as soon as I say that, there'll be some people saying, no, wait a minute, so the AR board can hire and fire that individual, and that in who's now currently uh, a gentleman, his name is Lee Sonnenberg, and uh, if folks don't know him, uh, they should get to know him, and I'm sure they will over the course of time, because he's a good guy. But, you know, if the AR board can hire and fire the exec who chairs the accreditation council, doesn't that mean that effectively the AR structure has control over the accreditation function? No, because the policies in the operating rules of the game are all determined by that Accreditation Council board. For sure, if the AER board found that there were some, you know, something's up in a way that is inappropriate or whatever, I mean, sure, 
we could change that staff function for the accreditation work, but that's a pretty limited role really that AER plays. So the reason why I went through all that, Jonathan, is because, you know, what is the AER role? I mean, I think there are two. I know that the accreditation council, because I'm familiar with it since I was the exec for a couple of years here recently, and therefore chaired the accreditation council, that the accreditation function has looked at the development of an array of specific policies. For sure, the development of a, of a diversity, equity, inclusion policy, for instance, and other safety-related protocols. I fully expect that the attention that all of this, uh, these other matters in our f- community is getting are going to drive, how could they not, future considerations about things that ought to be added to the expectations of not only university programs, but also then private service provider agencies and special schools. So I would not be surprised to see them develop that more. In terms of the broader AER role, I mean, even just this past summer at our Biennial International Conference, we adopted a call through resolution to the Rehab Services Administration to adopt policies that are enforceable against private agencies that are putting clients, particularly in the residential context, at risk. Other organizations have passed resolutions along this line. The American Council of the Blind has, California Council, what other names should I be dropping and can't remember now. But in fact, the resolution that we adopted at AER last summer specifically cites those other calls through organizational resolution and aligns AER with that position. So, you know, you might say, okay, great, good for, good for AER members in this summer. They passed a resolution. I guess they care about it. I mean, right. And so now it becomes a collective community push, right? It's the community's responsibility, all of us together, to make sure that the recommendations, the demands of those resolutions are adhered to. And so that's going to involve future work with RSA and others to make those policies a reality. Is the nature of rehabilitation changing? When I talk with people about what makes the NFB training center so successful, notwithstanding the things that we've been talking about, people have said it's really about the difference between teaching someone to fish versus giving them a fish. And I just wonder whether thinking is evolving in this regard that some of the techniques that were popularized by Kenneth Jernigan and have become core to those training centers have now kind of entered the mainstream rehab profession. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. I remember in my first tour of duty at AER 20 years ago, right, the hot topics were things like providing orientation mobility services under blindfold, no matter whether you want it or not, and whether the instructor or the trainee wants it or not, and should that be a blanket requirement. And, you know, that set the, uh, there are lots, of course, consumers debating that issue hotly for sure. In the AER context, that was about, frankly, who should be making those decisions about when it's appropriate to provide services in this or that fashion, whatever they happen to be. I think it is, and Lord knows they did, a debatable (laughs) proposition about whether uh, it makes sense take any remaining use of any remaining vision away for purposes of being able to properly learn how to travel independently. People will disagree about that. And and indeed, people have tried to muster peer-reviewed research, uh, you know, evidence to try to support various points of view on the subject. And good for them. But ultimately, the AER question was, whatever that evidence shows, in this or that specific context, with this particular O&M instructor and this particular client, you know, who gets to make that decision? And ultimately, the debate came down to, 
look, if you're an employee, particularly an employee, uh, even a contractor, whatever, uh, your staff in some fashion of public agency X and the director says, look, on my watch in this agency, you shall do it the way I tell you to do it. Um, that ends up being a challenge for the orientation mobility profession that does have a code of ethics that is reflective of an array of points of view that have been debated quite significantly. And the challenge then becomes, who gets to call the shots? Now, if I were a CEO, I'd say, hey, you see the sign on my door? Here's my business card. You see the title under my name? I'm chief executive officer. That means I'm the boss. So I set the policy or my board or you know the powers that be here set that policy. And if you're going to come work for me as an orientation mobility instructor, you gosh darn better you know, well know as you come in that door for the first time, you answer to me. You answer to you know how we do things around here. That is not a unique dynamic to O&M, to the blindness field. Any, but that's, it's classic. If you've got a profession, a designated, known, independently certified profession that adheres to certain well-established canons and codes of ethics, and that individual professional who has those qualifications exercising their professional judgment – says in this particular instance, Mark really would not benefit or really could benefit from receiving O&M in this way. Who better to make that decision than that immediate professional? The debate, obviously, on the other side is everything I've just said. Who better? Their boss, the agency, the policy of the agent. But so that kind of stuff. I mean, I don't know if this is what you're getting at, Jonathan, with your question, but I would say those kinds of debates about what is the future of rehab or how have services in the rehab, voc rehab context, how have they changed, evolved? I, you know, having been away from an actual recipient of such services in a very long time, and as I told you, keeping my head way up, you know, pie in the sky, 35,000 foot, there's probably others who can give you a more thorough review of state of play of what's actually being delivered at the ground level in the voc rehab context. But I would say, you know, in, that, in those larger questions, all of those dynamics that I was just describing about who gets to call the shots, do we honor professionals for the professional judgment that they have earned, cultivated, and have had recognized through certification or some other credential? Do we recognize them, honor them or not? And I, I think that's always going to be a tension. Yes, because I suppose the professional judgments still does not necessarily ensure that there are positive expectations of blind people. And one of the problems that we have is that the blindness techniques, the blind way of doing things, is so often considered by even some professionals and society at large as the inferior way. There's the classic, this child can read print, but this child has to read Braille. I have mm. personally seen in my own field people taking five minutes to read a short email with their face very close to the screen, and they could have read yeah. that same email in 20 or 30 seconds by using text-to-speech, and yet there's a mindset, there's a pride thing that says, I am doing this the sighted way, and that is the non-blind proper way, therefore it's the superior way. And unless you instill the professionals and the decision-makers with that mindset that actually these alternative techniques are respectable, they're viable, they'll allow you to be more productive and efficient in your life, they'll increase your employability. I mean, you'll be fully aware of the mind-blowing statistics about the unemployment rate when you look at Braille readers compared to the non-Braille reading mm. population. It's astounding. So, you know, you've got to build those foundations, right? I think there's no question that in any profession, right, there becomes an orthodoxy that is imposed 
sometimes it's top down, sometimes it's whoever the loudest voices are, sometimes it's tradition, right? We've always done it this way, but they're, they're sure in any profession there is an orthodoxy. And maybe orthodoxy is a singularly inappropriate word because, you know, maybe it's not right thinking or, you know, straight thinking to use orthodox in the technical <laughs> right term. Because in fact, maybe that settled point of view is exactly founded on misconceptions you're talking about. But let's also not get ourselves that the reverse can also be true, which is somebody can come along with what they claim to be, look, you know, hey, we do some things differently here, and we're not going to just take the received wisdom. We're going to do something new. And really what that thing is that's trying to be passed off as something new is just a way to further narrow opportunities. So I can tell you from my own personal experience, I had a heck of a lot more vision, which isn't saying much, but a heck of a lot more vision than I have now, which is basically nothing, when I was a little kid. And I was one of those kids who, you know, thanks to his fierce tigress mama, got braille instruction when professionals in the mid 1970s were saying, "Well, let's just, you know, you don't want, to, you don't need to go down that road now. We, we, come on, that's that's, let's focus on making the most of his usable vision." And yet, it makes sense that I would receive braille instruction. I think it makes sense for any kiddo who's got who's got something up with their eyeballs to receive braille instruction. You want to give a child every conceivable opportunity to succeed, for sure. But there are also people who, in fact, do have usable vision, for whom, when you do an assessment of their so-called learning media needs, you find out that this child would actually succeed tremendously if they have an array of services, both Braille and other things, and to celebrate that and to honor the choice of that kiddo or their family, etc., and again, not to shut out Braille, but to make sure that the kid has every tool at hand to work well. And, you know, this ends up then getting translated into very concrete ways where there are different techniques for doing a so-called learning media assessment. And in fact, there are people who don't even agree on the name of that thing because they would say, what we want is a reading assessment uh, that's different from what most in the blindness field would provide as a learning media assessment. And when you break down exactly what that other evaluation tool or process does, what you find out is that it almost stacks the deck against being able to assess whether this particular child has usable vision that that child could benefit from maximizing in some fashion. So, you know, the funny thing about any profession, not just blind, any profession, you can get to a point where an aspiration to f develop and base a profession on evidence Nevertheless, is all being done by humans who have their own biases and come to the table with an agenda, right or wrong. And the only thing that you can really do is let those professions and those points of view and that evidence speak for itself, debate it, and we as a community will draw certain conclusions from it. Will we always get it right? No. Fallible human beings making these decisions. Don't ever look for perfection. But for sure, there are opportunities for debating things and coming together around a you know a consensus. And I think our field has on, on, in this particular area, for sure. Transcripts of Mosin at Large are brought to you by Numa Solutions, a global leader in accessible cloud technologies. On the web at numasolutions.com. That's P-N-E-U-M-A solutions.com. I want to change tack, and I wouldn't ask this question except that you raised this issue with me when we were setting up oh so it's interview. my fault oh okay. yeah, yeah. And, and and i applaud your bravery in doing this 
You've mentioned that you've struggled, and you made a brief reference to this, in fact, just yeah. a few minutes ago, that you've struggled with depression in your life yes. and that you yep. don't feel that depression among blind people is talked about enough. It's interesting that you raise this because over my summer, I read a very interesting book called The Power of the Down State, and mm. it talks in there about how minorities face all sorts of health risks because of the discrimination they suffer, the challenges they face, and the way that they internalize that inevitably. Could yeah. you talk a bit, if you feel comfortable, about that intersectionality of depression and blindness? Yeah, I will. The only thing I can ask people who are listening is to trust me when I say the following thing. In my case, we have a family history of some depression, really on both sides of our family, but it, you know, it's in my particular instance, I know with a certain you know, significant degree of confidence, having had professionals work with me, that this is much more of a sort of situational kind of thing with me than it might be for others. I mean, on some level, depression is always, you know, there's chemical in, in your body, how your brain works, how, et cetera, how your physiology is responding to things. I and mean, there's always those dynamics there. But in my case, I think I've always sort of struggled with what I always sort of casually called the blues. And then my depression, particularly what which really kicked in in the fall of 2019, was very much situational and triggered by, you know, some decisions that I had made, but also decisions that were made and dynamics that were going on at the American Foundation for the Blind. And I worked there for, what, two-thirds of my professional life. I mean, I love it. I'll always love it. I love the, the memories I have of the things we got done there, the personal and professional connections made there, and I still love AFB for what I believe in my heart AFB can become. We've got an international audience here, obviously, and I wonder if you're able to just talk a bit about what's happened at AFB and why this leadership change is going on. Well, I, I mean, the dispassionate part of that is at any time after, and in this case, it was a gentleman by the name of Carl Augusto, who is a dear friend and clearly someone who, in, we like to use these funny phrases in the blindness system for some reason, our leaders and our legends. Well, for sure, this guy is a, a leader and a legend, if there ever was one. You know, he had been the CEO for 25 years. And, you know, I think anytime you have senior leadership of that renown, serving for as long as someone like that does, and then you make a change, you know, it's a struggle. So AFB then hired new senior leadership who came in with, a, you know, I think a, a number of, um, uh, 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 what's a good adjective here? <laughs> uh, uh, interesting ideas. And one in particular that I certainly thought at the time would be something to think about, which is, okay, well, maybe if, you know, since no one seems to be making progress on employment for blind and visually impaired folk, at least not here in the in the U.S., maybe that should be the first, second, and third priority in a lot of ways uh, that we tackle at AFB. What, hey, you know, you get nothing from a, about amens, or, you know, but amens from me on that. But I think the approach then was to say, well, and maybe the way to do that is for the American Foundation for the Blind to play a major coordination role within the so-called Ability One program, right? The, the, what we used to just refer to as our workshop program in the States. And I think there are a lot of people for whom that tack raised eyebrows in principle. And then the way it was handled, frankly, where there wasn't a whole lot of transparency about what AFB was doing you know, really put some people's teeth on edge, for sure. But then whatever, over the course of time, that leadership makes certain changes, makes certain choices about who they want to have in reporting to them at senior leadership levels. 
And, you know, with any kind of change like that, especially when you have a sweet little, uh, yes, I can be sweet when I put my mind to it, uh, sweet, sensitive soul who has always worked with people who have ended up being super close friends. And then, uh, you know, now all of a sudden you find yourself reporting to a whole new crew of folk who don't necessarily have much in common with you or you with them in an environment that uh, is pointing in a totally different direction from where you thought things were going. Yeah, that's, that's a struggle. Right. So is this a danger of being a part of the system that obviously you've got to be on the inside to make a difference, but you can get to a point where your values feel compromised, right? And then it's probably time to go. Yeah. And I also want to be super careful to say uh, values. I'm not so sure that values in this AFB context were compromised. I think it's a deeply personal thing for me uh, in just the, the, in terms of a work environment. I think others have experienced that. I mean, there's been a ton of turnover at AFB and not just in my little set of cubicles where I worked, but in other contexts as well over there. And, you know, a lot of that has to do with managerial style. Uh, you know, there's a lot of those kinds of things which get into staff and stuff that is just not worth talking about publicly in that sort of sense. But to your point, I've been blind all my life. Obviously, as you can tell, I care about it very, very much. Got a lot of friends all over the place in various sectors, sectors of which don't necessarily or have historically not necessarily gotten along. And uh, gosh, I don't know how many times I've said to people who are close colleagues, you know, we spend a day, a week, a month on Capitol Hill together hammering away at something, or you're sitting across the table from a bunch of technology companies. And this was true 10, 12 years ago when we were trying to move the Communications and Video Accessibility Act through the CVAA. And, you know, you're sitting there and it's, and a lot of those tech companies were great to work with for sure. And yet there were a lot that were, I don't think, you know, is this a family show? I don't know that I can use uh, <laughs> words that what I would want to use with respect to some of these people. Uh, you know, we I have one it. company <laughs> that literally went to the press and said, Democrats are trying to regulate your iPhone, right? And they were trying to stir up partisan controversy where there was none since all of us in blindness had been working hand in glove with both Republican and Democratic members and staff who were getting along quite well. And frankly, we would not have accomplished the CVAA at all had we gone down any kind of a partisan rabbit hole. But this one group in particular tried to stir that pot because that's whatever, they play those kinds of dirty tricks. So yeah, I mean, you sit across the table from a group like that, and then you go home and you want to relax. And then your consumer electronics don't work. And I mean, you're always blind, right? You're always on. I am not a lady. And I don't think you have to be a lady to care about women's issues. I think I do. Um, but I cannot imagine what it must be like for a professional working in the women's health arena, doing that work all the time, nine to five, as it were. And then, you know, you go home and you're still a woman. I mean, I guess I can understand that dynamic in a sense. Those of us who are blind are always blind. And yeah, it's really tough. It also means, of course, the flip side is that when you do this work, it ain't a job. It's a cause and it's a passion. And if you are foolhardy enough, whatever, to stick it out and put up with that sometimes difficult dynamic, it's a super rewarding thing. But if you've got an organization that you've devoted yourself to for a good long while and they go off in a different direction and say, well, you know, I'm sure you've done some good things, but... Thanks so much, but we're, we're going over here. That can be really tough. But in my case, I then, you know, voluntarily stepped away from AFB and said, you don't want me? Well, the hell with you. Um, it was very much a, you know, cut off your nose to spite your face kind of thing. And I was mad. And 
ended up finding myself in a situation where a new employer who had hired me, I don't want to say they, it wasn't under false pretenses, but they believed that funding was going to be coming in to support a policy function that I was playing there. And that, you know, it's, it's dog bites man. Money didn't materialize. And I was already grieving what had happened. And gosh, you know, I thought people liked me doing this work. And I guess you guys weren't into me. And so then I ran away, and now here I have I found myself in this situation, and now look at you. Now you've turned your back, Mark, on things you care about, because you were all pissy about it, and now look at you. And there are a lot of other, other personal things that won't bore you with, but those are some pretty massive triggers. And so then you find yourself where, I mean, it gets really bad, really, really bad. And I've, and I've talked about this on other podcasts and things, um, other shows where aside from a physical <laughs> sensation of being burnt alive, I can't imagine how the experience of hell would be anything different from that feeling where you are down in that pit. And the worst part about it is you think, I'm never getting out of here. I mean, and even death is not going to, you know, if you want to get metaphysical about it, death isn't even going to release you from this. You will always feel this way. And the worst part is you deserve it. You you deserve to feel this. It's terrible. But uh, thank God, with amazing family support and uh, pastoral and professional help and good friends who are good at administering tough love, and for sure, a call out of the clear blue from AER saying, how'd you like to come help us out of the mess that we find ourselves in? And uh, people who know me really well know that there's nothing like putting Mark into a situation where... You got to fend for yourself and get into some good scrapes and a few good knockdown drag out fights with folk and get, you know, to, to relight that pilot light. And so I think the timing could not have worked out better for me. And I, now is the part where I get to say, and yes, it worked out, I think, better for yours truly and for AER in that they now, we at AER have a new exec. I've mentioned his name before, Lee Sonnenberg, uh, who's off to a good start. So he's our new permanent exec. And yours truly was hired by Todd Reeves, who's the president and executive director of the Overbrook School for the Blind in Philadelphia to head their international program. And so it's a thrill to take whatever I may have in terms of knowledge or, you know, the connections and bring them to bear to help assist, uh, to be supportive of people who are doing amazing work on the ground, particularly in Southeast Asia to provide educational technology and related services to a part of the world that, oh my gosh, we think we have it bad and we, we ain't seen nothing. It can all be pretty precarious, right? Because for a while you're humming along, things seem great, you've got a steady income, a job you love. And then I think when this sort of thing happens, it can be a little more difficult for a blind person to recover and bounce back from that for the various reasons that you've talked about. And Absolutely. then I suppose the thing is holding on because when your brain kicks into that depression state, you genuinely believe you're worthless, that there's no way of fixing this. You don't have the capacity at that point in time to see a way out. It's right. a very dangerous situation and quite difficult to extricate yourself from. It sounds like you had a really good combination there of great support and a little bit of luck, which we all need. Absolutely right. And, you know, when you're in a spot where you think, well, you know, no, 
Nobody wants you. Everybody hates you. And then in the span of not too long of a period of time, you find out, you know, people are seeking you out. I mean, I remember overhearing my dear sweet mama with whom I was living uh, for a number of months. Once this depression just really, I mean, I was, it just hit and it was a good thing. I don't want to overplay this either. I'd, I'd never got to a point, thank God, where I was thinking about harming myself. And I don't think there was any risk of that, but I, I for sure needed others to be around. And I've always lived by my, well, <laughs> uh, for the last 15, 16, 17 years, that's a whole other story of, of, of where I've been living by myself and on my own. So to be around other people was great. And my mother was very supportive, which is nice. She's also a, a good deliverer of tough love too. Uh, but I remember overhearing her say something to one of her little Lutheran lady friends uh, on the phone, you know, hey, um, this was in spring of 2020 when, you know, the world is shutting down and everyone is losing their jobs. And she says, you know, everyone else, seems like everybody else is losing their job with this COVID thing. And my son, you know, he, they just call him up and, and offer him a job. And it's true. That's exactly what happens to me. And then uh, along the way, while I was at AER, uh, our friends in the private agencies world, an organization called Vision Serve Alliance, they wanted to kickstart their public policy system change effort that another friend and former boss at AFB, Paul Schrader, helped to initiate with them. And uh, he went on to, what, uh, Greener Pastors? Am I allowed to say that? Uh, at the American Printing House for the Blind, and good for him. And so the private agency folks said, Mark, how'd you like to help us move that even forward, take it to the next level? And that was great. So we, here, there you go. Overnight, going from my feeling like, hey, we're done with you. You're, you know, you're a has been and we've moved on to the private agencies and the professionals in the field saying, maybe it's not a forever relationship, but um, we need you and we need your help. There's nothing like being needed to help. And the last thing I want to say about that, Jonathan, at least for now, I mean, you can, you can ask me other questions if you want. It's fine. But to your point about how difficult it is for those of us who are blind, and that's true. When I left AFB and got a, a job at an amazing group called National Disability Institute, who does amazing things, it's a cross-disability think tank, among many other things, focusing on the economic self-sufficiency and independence of all people with disabilities, uh, I was flattered to get the job. I uh, would have loved to, I think, continue on helping guide their policy work, but that did not turn out. But this is an organization for as wonderful as they are. I mean, I think I was their first full-time visually impaired or blind staff person. So again, from an environment where, no, AFB or none of the blindness organizations, from what I can tell, do it picture perfectly. But to go from an environment that is arguably tailor-made for blind and visually impaired people into an organization who has no clue what accessible PDFs are and how to make that happen... And um, a culture where, uh, you know, gosh, we're sitting around the table one day there in one of these all-staff meetings and a bonding thing. And the boss says, all right, now I want, you know, perhaps every one of you, why don't you get a piece of paper and draw a picture that um, is especially meaningful for you? You know, one of these bonding exercises. Well, <laughs> we did other things, but, but the point I'm making is this is not an environment where people were thinking much about the full inclusion of their blind staff. And so when you've got an environment like that, where you feel literally like the fish out of water, uh, that does not uh, help or improve one's mood uh, if one is really kind of struggling either. So you are correct, sir, that, I mean, I think it was amazing to go through an experience where, okay, I want to leave AFB now because of things I think they want to move on, and it's probably time for me to move on. And then even if you are going off and huff, you find a new job and you go through that effort and it's exciting. Oh, they hired me. Great. And then you get there only to find out that 
an organization that in theory should be super you know, disability sensitive, just has no track record or experience doing it and for sure that burdens your ability to succeed there. Mm. Uh, so I would be a liar if I said, you know, that also was not a dynamic in this. I, at one point toward the end there in September of 2019, I mean, it was a week's worth of trying to put together PowerPoint presentations and uh, perhaps Jonathan, if I had listened to you or to uh, Brian Hartkin or some of these other people <laughs> more than, more uh, more than I have or learned, uh, been disciplined to to learn those skills, that would have helped. But even if I had, it's an environment that moves at a different pace with respect to the preparation of visual materials. And if you're already feeling like a worm and you're not particularly capable of this, and you're thinking, "I'm going to fail. I'm going to I'm going to fall flat on my face in front of these people." That's super tough. And I I don't want to say that I'm glad that I've had those experiences, but I will say it's a it's it's been useful to now have lived through them because some of us who live in our heads too much and live up in the stratosphere and maybe are a little academic or policy oriented, sometimes a little you can get a little disconnected from the real experience of other people people and who are facing a lot more stuff than we know even partially about. I'm thinking it's great that you've come out the other side and that you are where you are. And it's a, a great story to be able to tell, at least to a great extent, in the past tense. But I'm also thinking you are sure. very articulate. You've got a lot of skills. You know people. You're well-connected. And I wonder what you might say to those blind people who are listening to this, who don't have a job at the moment, who genuinely try, you know, who've got an organized day, who might spend three hours when they're at their best in the morning mm -hmm. looking for and then applying for job after job after job. And they feel like the universe is just treating them like crap, that they've got <laughs> so much to give. They want to offer something. And nobody's giving them a chance because of inaccurate expectations of blind people. It grinds you down. And inevitably, it will send many people into a depressive state. And then it becomes a vicious cycle. Mm -hmm. uh, sure. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is networking. Now, before people tune it out and say, thank you for yet one more platitude, uh, let me tell you what I mean by that. Just looking at my little past or whatever on a piece of paper or looking at a resume. Okay, so went to law school. You got that credential. Yep, check. I will accept, because I hope it's true, uh, your compliments. So thank you. I'll let others judge if you are right or if I'm all those things that you just said I am. But whatever that is on paper, yeah, there's some stuff there. But you can have all the credentials in the world. And it's not going to mean a thing unless you have that network. And in my case, I am not a natural networker. I'm one of these big mouth introverts. As much of a talker as I am, I'd rather write than talk, believe it or not. And I would rather be by myself than in a group. This is going to sound super arrogant, but hey, it's, uh, I've been honest with you on this show. Um I, you know, if I'm going to be in a group, I want to be at the podium. I am not one who naturally gravitates to, you know, be in the group, in the stands with everybody else cheering on the team. I want to be on the field. I should be careful about using sports now because I'm such a nerd. I, I, <laughs> I always joke about in American sports, you know, football or baseball, which, which one is the game that's paid, played with the sphere or the oval, right? I, I don't necessarily know, but I don't need to be the quarterback. I don't need to be the star of the team, but I sure do need that feeling of, Wow, in that game, those couple of plays that Mark made, holy mackerel, I'm, it's amazing. We couldn't have done it without him, right? I mean, that is a 
deep personal need of mine. I don't have to be the center of attention, but for sure I need to be part of that team. Now, why did I tell you that? Because in my case, uh, I didn't have this elaborate gazillions of people work my network kind of thing. When I got out of law school, it was a year and a half looking for work, and that was a long year and a half. And I will use the D word, I'm lowercase d, depression for that period of time. There is nothing that makes you feel lower than low when you're getting to the point where you're cold calling offices, you're wandering in with your pretty little resume, and the receptionist says, oh, let me see if partner X uh, might be able to see you now, which, I mean, talk about a poor strategy of just wandering in. But hey, you do what you think you need to do uh, at a certain point, and a level of sort of desperation sinks in. Then you hear uh, receptionist go back and whisper to partner X a lot of words you can barely hear, but the few phrases you hear are, He's blind, and you hear that, and then you hear the deeper, and you know, this is 20 years ago, 30 years ago, actually, 30 years ago, you know, the deep male whisper voice that says something like, you know, I'll just tell him I'm not here, you know, take the resume, and comes back and says, yeah, well, I, I'm sorry, he's out, I thought he would, you know, I mean, they out and out lie to you. I mean, you know, you hear that kind of stuff, I mean, you just leave feeling like, I'm never, I'm not going anywhere, I might as well go back home and live with my parents, what am I, you know, or whatever, whatever you think uh, you need to do. That's tough. But in my case, I had a very small network. I've already mentioned Scott's name. There are a few others who I got to meet. But it's tapping what it is you have. Network is important, but it is those personal connections that are absolutely key. If you don't have them now, find a way to start to develop them, even if you are, like me, a uh, you know pretty serious introvert type whether it be a, an opportunity for, let's say, in a congregational setting where you're actually getting to... Being a good Lutheran boy, I'm hearing my conscience say, or not a very good Lutheran boy, I hear my conscience saying, no, you shouldn't go to church so you can find a job. But I would say that there are some intentional choices that have to be made in spite of perhaps one's nature. And uh, so if you don't have an immediate core of you know two or three people who also themselves may know folks, then intentionally build those networking opportunities into your life. And again, don't be afraid of, well, wait a minute, I'm not a social person. So if I do that or, you know, join the local club or the whatever, go to the library to meet new people, it frankly does not require dozens or hundreds of contacts necessarily in order for you to see uh, opportunities open. I'm afraid, Jonathan, that's all I got for you on that. I mean, there, there's no magical formula out there, but for sure, I can tell you it worked for me. And I'm a testament to how even tapping into the um, the limited context that you may have cultivated can lead to something. Oh, maybe I should say this too. Not every contact is equal. So, I mean, in my case, I was blessed, fate, whatever, pick, take your pick, that you're most comfortable with in your mind, that the limited contacts and network that I had were pretty significant, amazing people. So the last thing I'll say about this is, how did I get to meet the gentleman who's my best friend, but who also then helped to sort of get me connected up into this crazy wild blindness policy world? Because we had a mutual acquaintance who was a graduate of my college many years before me, who was part of a scholarship committee where yeah, I got a little, it's very modest scholarship to attend law school as a result of that. And this lady happens to be a well-known person here in DC, and well, I think in the States generally for a whole host of reasons. And uh, she was the one who said to me, oh, well, I, she was the first person I called when I moved to Washington DC in June of 90. I didn't know a soul up here, not one person. 
But I really was, I was in love with DC, wanted to move to this area for all kinds of reasons. And uh, so anyways, I called her out of the clear blue. Hey, I'm here. You know, I felt like this long lost sheep. And so this is the only name and number I had. And she said, well, you know, the person you really ought to meet is this gentleman. Uh, and that was the beginning of other things. So the moral of that story, you never know who is going to be in a position to connect you up with the right people. And in this particular instance, now we've come full circle, Jonathan, to your notion of, you know, what about blind people doing it for ourselves? Uh, this lady I'm talking about herself is visually impaired. And um, I think don't ever discount other blind people including other blind people who are going through struggles as being part of that network you ought to reach out to. So it's also incumbent upon those of us who are in those sorts of positions of influence to always make some time, isn't it, for those who are coming through and may need a helping hand. But to whom much is given, much is required. Mm. It's good to see, I like to think anyway, that the stigma about seeking assistance from mental health professionals is declining because if you break your leg, no one would say, well, don't go to the doctor because who knows what people will think of you. And hopefully if your mind is a little broken, you can seek some assistance as well. But I imagine that there are challenges there where mental health professionals who perhaps aren't particularly disability confident take the blindness out of context. So the blindness may be a contributing factor to some extent, but often I hear stories of mental health professionals who become fixated on the blindness and don't look at the individual they're with in a holistic sense. Oh, I, I, there's no question about that. And we've been talking for a good while, and I don't want to, frankly, probably bore people with a bunch of examples of mine. But even just in the the experience I had, which really was, you know, intensely speaking over about a six-month period, is that right? Six months? Yes, about that. First, uh, working with a, a straight-up you know, psychiatrist involving medication, which frankly was not a good fit for me. And you know, uh, when you've got a situation where your doctor is prescribing medication, you say to them immediately, "I'm experiencing all kinds of these other side effects, which are just exacerbating everything." And I mean, bad news. I mean, I'm still dealing with. You know, there are some medications that are so-called autotoxic medications, and for sure, the one that I was put on for anxiety and depression. I had no idea that there were such that you could pop a pill and it could screw with your hearing. I mean, I guess I should have known that, but what do I know? So I'm still dealing with tinnitus and other things as a result of what happened there, because I think there can be some perhaps mild, relatively speaking, but damage that's there. But, you know, when you have a situation where you're a doctor, you, you report all these things to them and their response is, oh, these are just excuses or these are just, you know, this, the patients will sometimes do this. So we maybe what we need to do is up the dosage. And, you know, you're a basket case, so you're not really in a position to necessarily advocate for yourself, which is why you need people around you who can help see that dynamic and respond to it. And I'm grateful to have had that option. But for sure, you've got, you know, along the way, working with this particular doctor who I dispensed with as early as I frankly had enough um, wherewithal to help, you know, move along and move into more of a talk therapy and uh, professional counseling context that was not so much focused on medication, but much more in, you know, talking to me and getting me to talk about and voice and grieve uh, all of that other stuff we've already talked about. You know, along the way, you just, crazy things are said to you, right? And assumptions are made about your blindness. And sometimes you can, you know, it's not that you can even point to a specific comment or something. It's just, it's the overall approach with you. You show up to an appointment with you and a, and a family member. And of course, they're only talking to the family member, not you. And here you are, a 50-year-old man standing there. And they're talking 
about you as though you're not there. Yeah, there's no question that a lot of that is attributable to backward attitudes about disability, which is why a number of our groups, AER has done this, American Council of the Blind, American ACB has got a, you know, a task force initiative underway to, you know, sort of get together and think about how can we collectively approach mental health professionals in that community to identify what are the most critical changes or attitudes or even professional standards that ought to be addressed and how we can do that together. So AER is contributing to that, ACB is, I think other groups are too. But for sure, it's a that is a community that needs a lot of, uh, the mental health professional community for sure needs a lot of education where we are concerned, as so many of them do. We never know what people are going through, do we? So it's a reminder to try and be kind to one another. Yes. And let me say about that, again, I would never say, I don't think I would, and I'm glad I went through that. Those were useful experiences. I mean, it literally was a, you know, just a hellish time. And if I spend time really, you know, reminding myself about the way I felt at various times, it's it can be terrifying. There's no question about that. But I will say that it is useful now at this point to see how many people have responded when I've put myself out there. I, I, I did a, uh, was it uh, May of 2021? I did a, a thing, uh, email out to, well, pretty much all of, the, all of our contacts, but especially the AR world, just, you know, hey, May, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and we should all be doing more about this. By the way, let you know, I've, I have some personal experience with this. And then you do that, and people who you have never met reach out to you. I am not going to use his name for his own personal, uh, you know, it's his business. If I mentioned it, everyone who listens to you, and Jonathan, you would do this too, you would say, my gosh, what a known named figure in blindness who sent me this just, I mean, if I printed it out, it would have been a four-page letter. And this person trusting me with this very personal commentary about, first of all, Mark, good for you that you did this. I mean, that's always nice to hear. Good to have encouragement. And then the rest of this letter is talking about their personal experiences, the fears they've had about it. It's just remarkable. And, and, you, and I'm reading this thinking, I have known of this personality who is an iconic figure in our community who, number one, they're an iconic figure, but I, I'm not a close personal friend with this individual. And, you know, we're not spending Thanksgiving dinners together. And this person is really trusting me with this commentary about their experience. And so many people did that. And it was just remarkable to see. So to your point uh, that we never really know what other people are going through, and, you know, in my case, a lot of people used to say, said to me at the time when I said this, you know, we would never have known, you know, you're always the guy that's trying to crack jokes, maybe crack them too often. Uh, you're, you know, you're always up there talking and being all animated. And this is the last thing we would have thought. And yet then still a few others, a small number of people, but who have said, we kind of noticed a couple things going on because we've had our own experiences along this line too. And just know that, you know, you're not alone. And that kind of stuff is just... It's spun gold to get that kind of feedback. And so it's a lesson, I think, to all of us to say, you can't really draw a lot of invariable conclusions based on what we think people are really like. And maybe that gives us or ought to give us a bit more compassion. I appreciate this discussion we've had. We've got into some good, meaty, philosophical topics, which will no doubt get people talking. And I also appreciate your willingness to be so vulnerable. The time has flown by. When do you become president of AEA? At the conclusion of the business meeting that happens at the next 
Biennial International Conference of AUR, which is going to be held somewhere. <laughs> I, I say sheepishly. I think you know, we're hoping for perhaps somewhere, it may be in the south, southeast maybe, but we haven't settled on an official contract, which we better get off the off the dime here pretty soon because it's going to be in July of 2024, unless, of course, we don't get cracking on settling on those dates. Well, I look forward to keeping in touch. I hope that we've stimulated some thought-provoking discussion. And uh, <laughs> thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you uh, having me be part of this. It's very fun. So thanks. Thank you very much, sir. I love to hear from you. So if you have any comments you want to contribute to the show, drop me an email written down or with an audio attachment to Jonathan, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. If you'd rather call in, use the listener line number in the United States, 864-606-6736. Mosin at Large Podcast.